So, uh, take the good with the bad. <laughs> but um, anyway, we trust that God will richly bless his word to us today. Let me draw your attention now, please, to the text that I want us to consider. Uh, Psalm 119, verse 75. The psalmist says, I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. So, uh, to steady the hearts of the Israelites with the prospect of, of Babylon looming, the prophet says in Isaiah 40, Behold your God. He says God is going to come with might, and God will rule, and God will tend, and God will carry his sheep. So fix your eyes on God, he says, and all will be well. And then to steady the hearts of Christians throughout the generations, the book of the Revelation does pretty much the same thing and says, behold your God. Look at God and realize that the Lord God omnipotent rules. And fix your eyes on him throughout the generations and throughout this time period between the first and second coming of Christ. Remember that the Lord God omnipotent reigns and all will be well. Now, every Christian, everybody here, and every Christian here has troubles. I know that. We know that from the Scriptures. We also know from Spurgeon. Spurgeon says, there are difficulties in everything except in eating pancakes. So we, so we know that everybody has troubles and everybody has struggles. But the Holy Scripture says, if you have troubles, it says, fix your eyes on God. Fix your eyes on God and all will be well. Uh, The boat is in the storm, but the Lord is in the boat. So you look to him and you fix your heart and your eyes on him and you will find that your heart will be steadied. All will be well. In the midst of my recovering from surgery, uh, the Lord did this for me and pointed out a text to me that effectively says the same thing and says, behold your God. And this text, verse 75, says that God is great and God does great things. So the lesson to me was uh, be strong and stop complaining and stop whining and don't panic and press on, but remember that you can't do these things if you don't keep your eyes on God, if you don't fix your attention on the Lord, if you don't draw your strength from Him and fix your eyes on who He is and what He does, you don't do that, well, then you can't be stable and steadfast. And remember then that you have no other refuge other than this God about whom this text speaks. So, Meditate on these things. Meditate on these te- this text and these truths, and you will find heaven-born courage and confidence, and that will carry you through the day for whatever trouble it is that comes your way. Well, what do we learn about God, then, from this text? Well, we learn at least three great truths about God. 
First of all, all God's ways are righteous. Second, all God's ways are faithful. And third, all God's ways are comforting. So we think about the first truth then, and that is that all God's ways are righteous. At some point in your trouble, when you face trouble, at some point you're going to ask why. Now, perhaps you ask why with tears in your eyes, or perhaps you ask why with anger in your heart, but at some point, you're going to say, why? You're going to say, well, now, why? Why this? Right? And why now? (laughs) And especially, why me? So you ask, why? Well, the answer of the text is, all God's ways are righteous. So that's our baseline. That's our foundational principle. Everything God does is righteous. And whatever else is true, this is true. That all God's ways in the world and all God's ways in your life are righteous. Now, in our passage, in our verse, in the ESV, it says rules. That's not really the best translation. The Hebrew word means a legal decision. That's why the New King James translates it judgment. All God's judgments are righteous. The word means a legal decision given by God that's to be observed by His people. And sometimes it refers to a courtroom. It's a place of judgment, a place of decision, and that's where the righteous and the legal decisions are made. Sometimes it refers to Uh, plans and instructions. Uh, For instance, it talks in 1 Kings chapter 6 about the the specifications of the temple. Here are God's rules and God's decisions and God's instructions about how to build a temple. So these are God's uh, decisions and God's plans. And sometimes it even refers, as it does in Judges 18, to the customs of a people. This is the way in which they live. Now, Spurgeon says, God orders all things and his judgments here, or his rules, here it means his general orderings, his decisions, his dealings, including the afflictions that he brings. So what I'm doing is I'm using the general phrase, God's ways. I'm saying that this is the way God deals with us, his decisions, the decisions God makes, the rules He sets, the actions He takes, the plans He executes, the providences He brings along. These are God's ways with us. And the text is saying God's dealings with us and God's ways with us are all righteous. They're quite right. They're absolutely right. They're right in every way. God's ways are right in every way. Every single point and aspect of God's ways are absolutely righteous. They couldn't be better. You cannot improve on God's ways. They are perfectly wise. They are absolutely pure. They're wonderfully righteous, God's ways. So that is our baseline, right? That's our foundational principle. The world is not run by the evil one. 
The world is not some evil chaos where everything is meaningless and there's no purpose and point to it all. No, the Bible makes it clear. God rules over all and all his ways are righteous. And the psalmist says, I know this. I know this, O Lord. All your ways are righteous. There are many things I don't know. Many things I'm confused about. Many things that, though I learn all the time, never going to get to this. I don't know. But this I know. I'm absolutely sure about this. I know that God's ways, all His ways are righteous. And I know this. I'm not guessing. I'm not making a guesstimate about this. I'm not hoping. I'm not crossing my fingers and hoping it's true. No, no. I know this. I know it's true. All His ways are are righteous, and so you're never going to be able to convince me that God is unrighteous. You're never going to be able to convince me that God has in some way dealt unfairly with me. You cannot convince me that He has done me harm. You cannot convince me that He has abandoned me. No, I know that all His ways are righteous. You'll never convince me that I am somehow suffering unjustly Because I know this, that all his ways are righteous. All his ways in the world and all his ways in my life. It's righteous. Why has this happened? And why is it still happening? And why can't I find a way out of this situation and circumstance I find myself in? And why... Did that person die? Why did my child die young? Why am I having to face this now? Why is there apparently no light at the end of the tunnel for me? Why am I suffering for doing good? Some people stand for something righteous. Some people are involved in so much that is beneficial for others and they suffer in extraordinary ways. And the question is why? Why are my loved ones not saved? So you pick a, pick a why question. And the answer to this text is, all the ways of God are righteous. Whatever else there is, this we know. We know it from Scripture, and we accept it by faith, that all the ways of God are righteous. This is where we start then. This is our foundational principle. We're we're drowning in the waters of affliction. And we feel ourselves going down and going down for the third time in these waters of affliction. And the waves of adversity threaten to just overwhelm us. But then your toes just touch sand. And you start to realize, no, no, Here's something I can stand on. Here's something foundational. Here's something that can steady me. Here is solid ground. All the ways of God are righteous. There's an awful lot I don't know. Questions still abound. Still confused in so many ways. But here I can stand. All the ways of God are righteous. Bedrock. That's the first point. Secondly, all of his ways are faithful. 
all of the ways of God are faithful. And so the psalmist now takes us a little deeper, a little further, perhaps, is a better way to put it. And now he focuses on the afflictions of the people of God, the suffering of the children of God. And we need to hear this because it's fine to have your head above water, but sometimes, you know, the water's, it's right here. And it's not comfortable. You want to be as comfortable as you could possibly be in this world in light of the truth of God. And that's what the psalmist is going to help us to do. And he's telling us, not only are all of God's ways righteous, but listen, all of the afflictions he brings are a result of his faithfulness. Our baseline is that all God's ways are righteous. But now we remember And now we're told in categorical terms that all of the suffering he brings into your life, and God always brings suffering into your life. And whenever God brings suffering into your life, it's not inconsistent with his faithfulness. On the contrary, it is the very expression of his faithfulness. That changes everything, you see. Charles Bridges writes, yes, the trials appointed for us are nothing else than the faithful performance of his everlasting promises and covenant commitments. And to this cause we may trace the reason for much that is painful in the flesh. Everything that's painful that you go through, you can trace it back to a fountain, and that fountain is God's faithfulness to his covenant obligations. That is extraordinary. That makes me want to stand up and preach. That's exciting. Spurgeon says, because love required severity, therefore the Lord exercised it. It was not because God was unfaithful to the believer, and that's the reason the the believer found himself in a difficult situation, but for just the opposite reason. It was the faithfulness of God to his covenant which brought the chosen one under the rod of affliction. It's the expression of God's faithfulness. So what do we know then about the afflictions of God that come our way? Well, we know several things. The afflictions God sends to you are the expressions of his love. Not contrary to, but the very expression of his love. Lamentations 3.33 says, For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. I prefer the way the New King James puts it. He does not afflict willingly. He doesn't afflict us grievously. He doesn't afflict us and then sit back and smile and say, let's see how you deal with that. No, he doesn't afflict willingly. He afflicts, in a sense, reluctantly, but knowing that this is the expression of love and this is a necessary affliction for the people he loves. It's very much like with with your children, And because you love them, you'll teach them hard lessons. Because you love them, you know that at times they have to go through difficulties. And so you do what's best for them because you love them. And so in faithfulness, God afflicts. John Flavel writes in a 
wonderful little book called Biblical Morning, M-O-U-R. He says, first, if you are God's covenant people, He may afflict you, but He will never forget you. <laughs> That's wonderful. He may afflict you, but He will never forget you. God never forgets you. You're never out of His thoughts. He knows everything we're told. He knows what you're thinking. He knows what you're struggling with. He knows the doubts you have. He knows the fears that you struggle with. He afflicts you, but He doesn't forget you. He will ever be mindful of His covenant people. You are as much on His heart in your deepest affliction as in the greatest flourish of your prosperity. Sometimes you're on the mountaintop of wonderful times and you think, oh, isn't God good? How wonderful of Him to think of me and to bless me. You're as much on His heart in the pit as you are when you're on the mountaintop. He loves you. These afflictions are the expression of His love. The afflictions He sends, moreover, are according to wisdom. He's the only wise God. This God, who in all His ways are righteous, and in all His afflictions that He sends is faithful, He afflicts according to His wisdom. He's the only wise God. He knows the best goal, and He knows the way to get to the best goal. I saw my surgeon the other day who did my knee, and he walked into the room and looked at me, and he says, Oh, the awful knee. So that's how he knows me. And then I saw a sheet he had on which he had written something about my knee, and I saw the phrase, gross deformity. <laughs> and I thought, well, I don't think I want to read any further. And given that, prior to this surgery, I thought, well, I don't know how to fix that. This gross deformity and this thing. And I would take, you know, liniment, you know, A-rub 535, yeah, rub that on, say, maybe that'll fix it. Well, no, it didn't. So a doctor comes along and he says, oh, I can fix that. Not totally convinced yet, but I, I'm looking, looking forward to the future. Um, it's because he's wise. Hmm? He's wise. Well, I love you all, but you have a gross deformity as well. It's in here. Even, even you, are, you Christians. You know, we have gross deformities. It's right in here. You have indwelling sin. And only God knows, really knows how to fix that. And in order to fix it, He knows that He needs to send affliction. He needs to afflict you. He needs to make you endure pain to fix you, to get you better. And so with the, the infinite wisdom of a divine surgeon... He will organize and orchestrate your life so that affliction comes in the necessary ways and at the necessary time and will endure for a necessary length 
so that you can get better, so you can be more like Christ. So the afflictions he sends are according to his wisdom, and the afflictions he sends are consistent with covenant purposes. What are God's covenant purposes for you? Well, if you read Romans 8, 28 to 30, you find it there. God's covenant purposes for you are to work everything for your good so that ultimately you will be perfectly conformed to the image of Jesus. You'll be absolutely spot on in every way perfect, just like Jesus. That's his purpose for you. And everything he brings into your life, the blessings and the burdens, the mountaintop experience and the in the valley of death experiences, he brings that all so that he might move you towards and ever closer towards that great purpose of perfect conformity to Jesus, at which point you will enjoy the glory of being just like Christ. So every affliction then, it's brought in faithfulness to his covenant purposes. All his afflictions he sends are according to his promises. They manifest his promises. What does God promise us to do? Well, he promises us that he will sanctify us. Your afflictions will sanctify you they will sanctify you. John Flavel writes, if we count humility, heavenly mindedness, contempt for the world, and longing desires for heaven to be the real interest and advantage of the church, then it is evident that nothing promotes their interest as much as a suffering condition. Do you believe that? Nothing promotes your interest as much as a suffering condition. Surely, there must be something else. But no. Nothing promotes your overall divinely ordained best interest than affliction. Affliction, for instance, brings your sins into view. John Newton writes, Abominations, like a nest of vipers, lies quietly in us till the rod of affliction rouses them and then they hiss and show their venom. <laughs> I hate to say it to you, but you have abominations within you. We clean up well for Sunday. I feel I'm not completely upset with my ensemble. You look pretty well on Sunday. But inside, abominations. And I have to say that the, the viper of impatience, I have felt the presence of the viper of impatience more in recent days than I have maybe my life. And it's been stirred up, provoked by affliction, for this purpose, so that it might be identified and slain. So God is going to use um, afflictions to sanctify us, to show us our sins so that we might be rid of it. John Mason writes, through affliction, God separates the sin he hates from the soul he loves. That's a good 
maxim to memorize. Through affliction, God separates the sin he hates from the soul he loves. It's also true that he uses affliction to bring to the surface virtues that you didn't even know you had. Robert McShane said, Affliction brings out graces that cannot be seen in times of health. It is the treading of the grapes that brings out the sweet juices of the vine. So it is that in affliction, God draws forth submission or weanedness from the world or complete rest in God. Use afflictions while you have them. That's certainly the case. I've seen it with some of you. I've watched some of you as you've gone through afflictions. And we who watched and observed you, we've observed virtues. Virtues we didn't know were there. Virtues there to a degree we didn't understand. And we've seen this in you. And God's brought it to the surface. And that's what the Lord does through afflictions. And as he does that, he not only brings them to the surface and brings them to the understanding of those around, but uh, he's made you increasing in those virtues and he has made you a better servant. He's made you more fit for the master's use. And after affliction, you're more useful in the kingdom. Andrew Fuller writes now, Fuller's talking here about a minister of the gospel, but it's true of all of us. And he says, perhaps the greatest qualification, the best instruction, the most useful learning that any Christian minister can attain without disparaging other types of learning is that which is attained in the school of affliction. It is by this that he becomes able to feel and to sympathize and to speak a word in season to them that are weary, and so when you suffer, you're better able to serve others. And you're more useful in the kingdom. So yes, God uses these afflictions. He brings them, and he brings them in faithfulness to his promises, because he promises to sanctify, and he promises to help. The Lord promises to help, and when he afflicts us, he's faithful to those promises. John Newton writes, he's writing, you see, to a a member of the congregation who's gone through some struggles and, and presently is going through struggles. And he writes and he says this. He says, like sheep, we are weak, destitute, defenseless, prone to wander, unable to return, and always surrounded by wolves. But all is made up. That is, it's all right in light of the fullness, the ability, wisdom, compassion, care, and faithfulness of our great shepherd. He guides and protects and feeds and heals and restores and will be our guide and our God even until death. And then when we die, he meets us and receives us and presents us unto himself and we shall be near to him and like him and with him forever. And so the Lord brings afflictions, but it's always in accordance with his promises because he promises us he's going to help us, and he does. And then he promises to reveal himself to us. You know, that promise is at the heart of God's covenant with us. You see this phrase repeated again and again in the Bible. I will be their God and they shall be my people. 
And when you are brought through afflictions, and when you go through afflictions, as I know some of you are even now, well, what's happening is that so often during those times, God will reveal Himself to you as He does not at other times. And that's an extraordinary privilege. That's what makes affliction such a blessing. We read, um, for instance, about John Payton, who, as you know, suffered immensely in his missionary activity in the New Hebrides, ministering amongst cannibals. And he writes this. He said, it it is a sober truth and comes back to me sweetly after 20 years that I had my nearest and dearest glimpses of the face and smile of my blessed Lord in those moments when people aimed guns at me and threatened me with clubs and spears. And he says, those were the times when I was most near to God. And those were the times when I had my most profound experiences of the presence and the blessedness of being a child of God. The presence of God and the blessedness of being one of His. It's during those times when people wanted to shoot me, when people wanted to beat me to death, those were the times when I knew God best. That's extraordinary. That's why these are times when, as McShane says, you know, you will never find Jesus so precious as when the world is one vast howling wilderness. Then he is like a rose blooming in the midst of desolation, a rock rising above the storm. Now he'll, he'll bring affliction, but it will be in accord with all his promises, his promises to, to help us, to reveal himself to us, and to mature us. You know, God's committed to this promise that he will make us grow up. I'm 65, but I need to grow up, need to mature, and need to be a full-grown tree of righteousness. And God will do that. Spurgeon says, I dare say the greatest earthly blessing God can give any of us is health, with the exception of sickness. If some men that I know of could only be favored with a month of rheumatism, it would, by God's grace, mellow them marvelously. I'm not saying you should pray for that or wish that on someone that may be afflicted, but he's saying, you know, it makes us grow up. It makes us mature. He says, um, does Spurgeon again, he says, I'm afraid that all, of all, that all the grace that I have got from my comfortable and easy times might almost lie on a penny. That's, that's how little it is. It, you, you could put it all on a penny. But he says, But the good that I have received from my sorrows and pains and griefs is altogether incalculable. Affliction is the best bit of furniture in my house and the best book in a minister's library. That's the truth for all of us. That's the best way God's going to help us to mature in our faith and help us grow exponentially into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I wonder if you believe that. I wonder if you believe that... uh, that this is the way we grow. Well, I, th- I think it's a truth that's emphasized repeatedly in the Bible, and, and you can think about and read Romans 5. You can go to James chapter 1. Uh, you can go to Psalm 119, Jeremiah 12, Hebrews 12, and so on and so on. God uses affliction. 
in affliction. God works faithful to his covenant obligations. Sometimes we're we're forgetful of this, but it's a profoundly biblical truth. Well, in light of this, two things to pray for. Pray for grace to believe. It's easy when you're suffering to be angry, and it's easy to feel sorry for yourself. It's hard to see God's hand in it. It's hard to believe this text, to see that all God's ways are righteous, and that it is in faithfulness he afflicts. And then to see God's hand in all his, his, all his, his ways in the world and all the circumstances of your life. It's hard to see that. We don't have the eyes to see that. We don't have the spiritual perception to embrace that. So you, you pray for grace to believe. Sometimes we're like the children of Israel. Exodus 6, 9. They did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. And sometimes you and I are slow to believe because of a broken spirit. So Pray for grace to believe this text and texts like it. And then pray for grace to submit. Pray for grace to submit. It's uh, John um, Thomas Brooks who writes, The humble soul endeavors more how to honor and glorify God in affliction than how to get out of affliction. He says, uh, they're not anxious about getting out of affliction, but they're studious about how to glorify God in their affliction. They're willing to be anything and bear anything so that in everything God might be glorified. He says, the proud, the proud heart will say anything, do anything, or be anything to free himself from the burdens which press upon him. But a humble soul is willing to bear the cross as long as he can, as long as he can get strength from heaven to kiss the cross and bless God for the cross and glorify God under the cross. So, in light of these things, if it's true then that God in faithfulness afflicts, pray for grace to believe it and pray for grace to submit to it. So all God's ways are righteous and all God's ways are faithful. And then now, very quickly, all God's ways are comforting. I don't know what you think of when you think of comfort. I wonder if you think of this. This is a man named Ursinus who, who uh, wrote a commentary in the Heidelberg Catechism, which is tremendous. But he defines comfort in this way. He says, comfort is that which results from a certain process of reasoning in which we oppose something good to something evil, that by a proper consideration of the good, we may ease our grief and patiently endure the evil. Now, maybe that's not what you thought of as comfort. Comfort is a hug. A comfort is, you know, someone comes to you and says, I just think this is going to work out great. You have no idea, do you? But, uh, yeah, it's going to be fine. And I walk away, I feel great, thank you, that's comforting. But no, you see, real comfort 
has to be based on truth, on the foundation of truth, and built on that foundation of truth. Otherwise, you're just blowing smoke in the air. So that's why this man says, it's the result of a process of reasoning. And you take truth, you take the good truth, and you put it opposite the pain and the anguish. He said, well, now in light of the truth, that, that really helps. That eases the grief, and it enables endurance. It's because of the truth. You see, that's why this is such a great text. You look at the truth here, and it tells you truth about God and about his ways. And all his ways are righteous and faithful and consequently comforting. So what's your one great comfort in life? There's comfort in all kinds of stuff. You know, wrapping yourself in a blanket, eating certain types of food. I get that. Really? But there's really only one real and true and lasting and enduring comfort in this world. Let me quote to you the best expression of that. The Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 1. Question and answer 1. The question is, what is your only comfort in life and death? Here's the answer. And this will reward meditation. Here's the answer. What's my only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has delivered me from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, also assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. That is my only comfort in life and death. Christian, is that your only comfort in life and death? If you're a true Christian, you have to say yes. And if you say yes, you are extraordinarily blessed. No matter what your particular circumstances today, no matter what you face in the days to come, you are extraordinarily blessed for you know this God who in all his ways is righteous and in all the comforts he brings your way is faithful. If you have to answer no to that, then the thing to do before another moment passes is to run to Jesus by faith and to trust him and entrust yourself to him so that these truths might be true of you. There's no comfort for you in anyone else and in any other refuge. There's only hopelessness. So if you're not a Christian, run to Jesus. 
Perhaps you've listened to some of these things and thought, my goodness, that's wonderful. It's not true for you unless you're a Christian. So if you are charmed by these things, if your heart goes out to these blessings, and if you say, I want, I want that what they have, I want, you must come to Jesus. All these blessings that are ours, we who are Christians, can be yours if you come to him. And then you will know And then you will serve. And then you will be forever with the God of whom the scripture says, all his ways are righteous. And all the afflictions he he brings are out of his covenant faithfulness. And consequently, our greatest comfort is in him. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, we thank you and praise you for who you are and for who you are to us. And we pray for any who are strangers to grace this day. Pray that you will draw them by your your power and through the instrumentality of your word and by the activity of your spirit into a saving relationship with Jesus that they might this day taste and see that the Lord is good. We pray in his name for his sake. Amen.